Hello, everyone. Welcome back to what is now called How Are You Really? Because I had a little problem with the RX Express. People thought I was dealing prescription pills, so we didn't want to confuse that. So we have a new name. And also on the picture, there are those pictures are going to change. And if anyone would like to send in a picture of something or someone that they would like on the website, every month I'm going to put a new picture on there. And I now have a listener comment. So there's a link attached to the site that you can leave me a message if you would like. So I'm so excited tonight. Rashida Rosario Daniel is on with me. Her and I worked uh, somewhat together, not really, same company for Northeast Center for Youth and Families. She worked there as the regional director of residential services that oversaw Massachusetts and Connecticut. And then after that is when she went to the Virgin Islands, which she is a native of, and she was the deputy, this is a long title, deputy commissioner for the juvenile justice division of the Department of Human Services in the US Virgin Islands. Did I get that correct? Technically, yes. <laughs> and now she is the Director of Juvenile Justice with the Center for Human Development. She also has her master's degree in education and educational counseling, which you got from Springfield College, correct? I did. Yeah. So Rashida, I there's so many things that I want to discuss. I try to pick one central theme when I do these sessions. And this one, I wanna focus a little bit on residential for juveniles, but I want to talk to you because I was just in the Virgin Islands. Mm. I wanna to talk to you a little bit about how they are dealing with mental health crisis. And I have to say that I did a lot of reading about what happened after Hurricane Maria. Yep. And I can't even believe how well the island looks now because I saw pictures of what it looked like mm -hmm. and I could not believe it. It just was devastating to look at. So were you there for Hurricane Maria? Yes, um, we had just returned actually from Massachusetts. We were up here when Hurricane Irma hit. Um, and then left um, a couple of days after Irma hit, we returned to St. Croix, which hadn't sustained significant damage. Um, but as we were in a state of emergency, um, you know, human services was, was I want to say on alert, but you know, operating under emergency status, I guess is the best way to say it. So we were working um, seven days a week, 12 to 16 hours a day. Um, and then Hurricane Maria hit um, and the majority of the DHS staff were working through the hurricane. It was absolutely, it's not my first category five storm. Um, when I was 11, Hurricane Hugo hit and it was a higher end category four slash category five storm at the time. So it's the second time my husband and I both are um, natives to St. Croix. So it's the second time we had to live through that now as adults with my kids and my mom. So um, yeah, it was tough. It was tough, but you know, they're so resilient. The Caribbean 
islands, all of them are just made of a resilient people. And so we, I'm not surprised. We went back, um, we left in 2018 and went back. We have been back just about every year, except for the whole COVID mess. Um, and we're not surprised at all that it's picked up and changed and rebuilt and, you know. Just amazing. I would not have, I, looking at the pictures, it was so devastating. And when I talk to people about trauma and mental health, and I think about what happens after something like that, a natural disaster like that, I honestly could did not comprehend that's a whole nother part of mental health crisis. Oh, absolutely. And then, um, you know, when you think about like, and it's not to sort of detract from what anyone else has gone through, but when you think about um, the hurricanes that hit Florida, Texas, shortly before Irma, absolutely flooding, the loss of life, the loss of property, it's horrific, but you know, Florida's connected to Georgia, is connected to South Carolina, you know, so there's ability for people like after Katrina to leave New Orleans and go to Houston or leave, you know, a place that's physically ravaged and go somewhere for sanctuary. Um, I think people sometimes forget that, you know, on Caribbean islands, it's an island. And so after Hurricane Maria, the ports were all closed, the airports, the seaports, there was no way off the island for people who needed to leave. And there was no way on the island, um, you know, for family members stranded. You know, there's emergency personnel, obviously, and, and emergency supplies. But, you know, um, my family in, in Texas or Florida couldn't get to us. We couldn't leave and get to them. You know, so you're living in that despair um, and hardship without electricity, without I mean, we lost electricity in September and we got it back in December. So that's months of no electricity, um, you know, running water is it, down there. It's all cisterns and the cisterns are connected to pumps that run on electricity. So without electricity, you can't pump the water, which means my husband is, you know, buckets of water up out of the cistern for, you know, cooking and showering and flushing toilets and that kind of stuff. So it's, yeah, it's tremendous, the amount of um, resiliency that Islanders have. I know, because one of the days that we were there, I was in a Kmart, and I struck up this conversation with this elderly woman, and we were talking, and it was raining, and I said, oh, it's raining, she's brushed it off, and I asked her about the hurricane, and I said, were you able to leave here, and she said, look, just, she just looked at me and said, <laughs> We, nobody left. Nobody was going anywhere. And, no. and that's when it hit me that on top of everything that was going on for someone that doesn't struggle with mental illness, mm -hmm. isn't struggling with other issues in their life. Now, on top of that, you lose everything. You have to pick up the pieces. And it's almost like that's where that resiliency comes from because there's nowhere to go. You have to rely on each other. And that's one thing I really liked about driving around this island. Everybody is out talking to everybody, neighbors mm -hmm. talking to everyone. I could drive through six neighborhoods up here and not see any neighbors outside talking, even in the summer. Mm -hmm. As Joe and I drove around, everybody is outside talking. And yeah. it just put 
another view of what this topic really is because people forget there that is part of the United States mm -hmm. and it was overwhelming to think of that type of tragedy but it looks amazing so that resiliency and what they've done is truly remarkable I think other parts of this country could take a lesson from what goes on in that area. And I don't know what the other islands are like. I can only go by St. Croix, St. Croix, but it was wonderful. But I was reading that Governor Bryan, I was looking at what policies they have in place, mm -hmm. mental health facilities, residential treatments. And it looks like last year they did a complete overhaul. Mm -hmm. They wanted to address the residents who struggle with behavioral mental health challenges, developmental disabilities, alcoholism, mm -hmm. drug addiction. And it from reading the information, does this mean that before this happened, they were struggling to address this in a different way? Um, I, I wouldn't say struggling. So here's when I started at the Department of Human Services in 2016, um, it was under government map who I have tremendous respect for um he has always championed um you know reform when it comes to working with the elderly population when it comes to working with juveniles whether they're juvenile justice or juvenile mental health um always champion that and so it was one of the reasons that I accepted the job offer because I knew that he really in his heart um, wanted the best for the people of the Virgin Islands. When he inherited the um, stewardship of the islands as governor in 2014, um, he picked up what was really an overburdened system. And so one of the things, you know, in our, in our conversation, in our interviews and over emails that we talked about was, I need people with new ideas who understand um, you know, new modalities of treatment that can bring that to the islands. And so for me, for juvenile justice, it was bringing in trauma-informed care and bringing in, um, you know, different modalities of therapy um, and sort of giving all of these hardworking, dedicated, um, educated individuals the support that they needed to keep doing really good work. Because I think people think, oh, you know, it's tough and they're struggling and it's a burden but it's not really about the staff that are there. They're all really qualified, really capable, really um, understand the needs of the community, but they're strapped for resources. Um, simple things like um, the, the social workers for the Division of Juvenile Justice having laptops and Chromebooks and, and Surface Pros to be able to go out and connect um, to the office because they work 90% of the time in the community for the officers at, you know, YRC and other places to be able to have the updated training and updated equipment um, and an updated facility to work in. So you have, it's, it's, the struggle is really having all of these human beings who are amazing at what they do get the support that they need um, and aid what they're worth. So those were the two biggest, um, I think, struggles for me going into the system. It's a topic that keeps coming up time and time again, and it's paying people what they're worth. And 
I have tried to figure out if you don't have your master's degree or you don't have your bachelor's and you're working in a residential treatment facility, a psychiatric treatment facility for juveniles, we'll, we'll use juveniles, and you're getting paid minimum wage and the list of responsibilities that you have, because essentially you're helping to support these young individuals, but you're also raising them, somewhat them, especially with the latency kids. So it seems across the board, no matter who I talk to in this country, we are not paying people what they're worth because they're doing it in other countries. We're they are. We're not doing it here. And I just, I don't understand where or who is deciding the value of what we're going to put on somebody. Well, I mean, I think as a society, we place more value on things than we do on people. Um, we're a consumer driven society. Um, so we place value on the newest iPhone. And I'm, and I'm, it's not, this is not from a place of judgment. I mean, I can't sit here and say, well, my kids are totally unplugged or disconnected. That would be a lie. They have their a PS4. We have flat screen TV. Like, so to sit here and be like, oh, you know, it's, it's in, in, a, in a place of judgment. That's not where I'm coming from. It's just, we are, we, we value things more than we do people. Um, it's, it's sort of how we were built as a nation. Um, and it is what it is. But that's kind of why our system is the way it is. You know, athletes, uh, professional athletes uh, make millions of dollars a year. And, you know, it's, they bring in revenue, um, ticket sales, endorsements, like all of that. So they're, they're paid for that because they make billions for the company or the team or whatever. So I get the, the logic behind that. But when you think about like teachers, for example, they're educating the next generation. They are building and continuing to supply the bedrock of what our nation is. Every generation, um, you know, that comes forward continues to drive America forward to be the leaders in technology and medicine and science. But if we don't place value on those men and women that are going into those classrooms and teaching, educating, enlightening, and enriching our children, then what are we doing? two generations now, when we're teaching to a test versus helping them learn critical thinking skills, helping them to understand, you know, the makeup of the country that they live in and how our choices shape who we become. Like, that's not what we're teaching anymore. When I was teaching in the nineties, that's what we were teaching. Then we started teaching to the MCAS and it's about, you know, you put the burden on teachers to pass a test. So they put so they start teaching to the test, even though that's not what you asked them to do. Right. Uh, and you don't pay them enough. Like if you really think about what a teacher spends in a day, in, in a 24 hour day, not just the seven and a half hours in school, but all the time at home preparing lessons and all the time at home grading papers and all the time now emailing families and kids, then you, you, you know, took that out dollar per hour, they're not making nearly enough. Right, right. And um, that goes to every, I'm sorry, I keep cutting you off. Oh, no, no, I know. I, because I think you and I and a lot of other people could go on and on about this. And mm -hmm. there are some companies that really do value their employers. 
their mm-hmm. employees. Uh, and I know that because I've, I've seen them. I've talked to employees that really feel that they're getting paid what they should, but those aren't the people with master's degrees and bachelor's degrees. And I'm not saying someone with a master's degree can do this job any better than me if I didn't have a master's. Uh, right. You and I have met a lot of people that are very book smart and they go through school and they get out into the field and they realize this is not what I want to do and for whatever reason. But what I want to do is I want to ask you a couple of questions specifically about your job at CHD and yeah. you even, how did you get into this field? Um, into what I'm doing now or the field yes. of juvenile justice? Just juvenile, just working with juveniles. Um, well, I've been working, uh, it started in, in high school and college, um, volunteering. You know, you have to volunteer in high school to get into college. So that's where it started. And then um, the partners program at Springfield College is really where I developed a passion for working with kids. And then, you know, I, well, um, when I worked on my master's degree, I worked um, in Springfield Public Schools with, so they, there was something called the SAGE project, um, 97, 98, 99, early 2000s, where Springfield College partnered with Springfield Public Schools and DYS. And so, um, and, and probation, Springfield Police Department, they all formed this coalition to develop um, a school where kids with, who were adjudicated could go to school and they would be taught pro-social behaviors and work on their behaviors, but also work on their education. And so I was part of the SAGE project in 1997 and 1998, and I graduated in 98. And um, it was developing cohorts of teachers who understood what what was then called experiential education, teaching through doing. Um, And so we, we did that. Everything, we created creative lessons plans, for the kids, we did tons of field trips weekly. We were going on weekly field trips for kids to get out there. We did community service learning projects um, because recidivism rates research historically shows that the more positively the kids are connected to the community, the less chance they are to um, continue to reoffend. And so that's what the SAGE project was. Um, and I went with a group of amazing adults who really did this for the right reason tried teaching for a couple of years and then got a job at what was then Tri-County <laughs> yeah. doing work on the weekends. And I loved residential piece more than I loved the teaching piece. I felt constrained by the um, teaching to the MCAS piece. It was really difficult for me after taking a two year long master's, double master's degree on how to teach outside of the box to then be boxed in by a test. So I took my skills and I went to Maycumber <laughs> and worked with the little kids and loved it and then ended up working at every program there. Um, and then unfortunately there was some shifts in, in vision and leadership at, at what became NCYF. Um, and I left in 2016 and went back to my first passion, which is adjudicated kids and, and um, did that in the Virgin Islands for a couple of years and then got a great job offer um, from the then director of juvenile justice, Jess Orcott, um, to run their secure residential treatment program, uh, out here in Western Mass. And I missed working with the kids. So it was like, oh, this will be fun. And I went up and loved it, loved it, spent a difficult, but exciting, 
um, and fun filled uh, two and a half years. And then um, when the most recent director of juvenile justice left, thought, eh, do I really want to do admin again? Do I really want to pull back so much from working with the kids? But, you know, did it and accepted the position in November. And so here I am. When we were at NCYF, when Tri-County had the residential houses, because I left a couple years before you and I worked with some of the most amazing people in this Absolutely. I, it just, I was always blown away going to the houses. And at that time, they, it, you could start these programs. I just remember going in and saying, hey, can we do a cooking class? Let's try. Mm -hmm. There was no resistance. And I did not ever hear, Danielle, this isn't how we do things. <laughs> I didn't hear it. I hear it all the time now, but I didn't hear it then. And I think yeah. that's what made things so successful for that program. The kids knew they had this safety net around them, but they also were supported with their mental health needs along with figuring out life, just figuring out where they were going to go when they left that house. Right. They don't like to take too many statistics of what happens to the kids five years down the line. Yeah. A lot of us teachers that worked at Tri-County have stayed in touch with a lot of these kids that are doing yeah. really well. Yeah. And it was so amazing. And I think the key to it was they weren't put in, these kids were not put in a box, the boys' house and the girls' house mm -hmm. weren't being, if they were to run from the program, they weren't being chased down, tackled to the ground. I just mm -hmm. remember following a kid, walking, walking, walking. <laughs> yeah. And I just remember saying, okay, I'm getting some exercise. We're getting some mm -hmm. exercise. Let's just make this into something positive here. And she looped around, went back to the house. Mm -hmm. It was very different. And I don't see residential care like that as much anymore. Mm -hmm because and it's not because of lack of wanting it to be like that it's the lack of training that they're offering staff that mm -hmm. staff are not trained completely and the staff are very young so you can i think you can be young and be very effective but I oh yeah i mean i started when i was 20 well, I started teaching when I was 20. So, and, and working relief in the houses. So yeah, I mean, I wasn't even legal. <laughs> yeah, you, you could have been two years or a year older than some of the rest yeah. of were living. Yeah. Yep. So what is the process of a kid coming to your program? And can you just explain for people that listen that don't know some of these terms, what does adjudicated mean? So adjudicated means that they have been before a judge and in some way, shape or form have been committed to the Department of Youth Services. Um, it means that they've gone, through, I mean, it's, it's different from in the adult system, but to draw parallels, it's almost like they've had their day in court. Um, and so, you know, the judge has made a determination that they're committed into the care of DYS. DYS is not their guardian but they are responsible at that point for making determinations about treatment um, and uh, stewardship, I like to call it, as opposed to guardianship of, of the youth. Right. So when they come to you, 
Are mm -hmm. they coming into a program? Are they going into DYS? Now that facility is in Westfield, correct? No, it's it's actually in Springfield. Um, the Westfield facility is state run. Okay. Um, in Springfield, it's a state building, but um, you know the staff are CHD staff. Right, right. So come to you, they are no longer in custody from their families. They now are in stewardship from the state, correct? Right, so we, SRT is a hardware secure facility. It's the um, only hardware secure facility in Western Mass. And uh, excuse me, well, the only boys hardware secure treatment in Western Mass to be more okay. specific. Um, and so the kids that come there have been adjudicated and we're either assessing them to see what level of, of treatment that they need or they've already been assessed and they're with us for that duration for the treatment that they need. Okay. And what's the longest that somebody can be there in that facility? Um, it all depends on how long they're committed to the department. I would say typically we get, you know, six to nine months. There have been a couple residents with us for a year. Two years is the max that I have any recollection of anybody being there. And when they leave the program, are most mm -hmm. of them leaving the program and going back home? Or are they going to independent living? What is the mm -hmm. purpose for them at that point? It's really tailored to the individual kid um, and family and the needs. So, you know, we have kids who leave there that are 16 and we have kids that leave there that are 21. So, I mean, you know, a 21 year old probably going to go into like an independent living situation and transition community, but a 16 year old may go right home. So, you know, it, it really depends on the kid and the situation. Are you able to, once they're, once they're back home or they're in another living situation, are you able to keep track or maybe are they monitored in any way? Do they come back for therapy? Do they have other services that are provided? So um, DYS, Massachusetts has a phenomenal juvenile justice. I mean, DYS is the juvenile justification for, for Massachusetts. And it's based on my research and work when I was a deputy commissioner, we worked with a number of different states. Massachusetts is absolutely top tier. Um, and so, and I don't work for DYS. <laughs> Let me just say that I don't. Right. So objectively, you know, I can tell you Massachusetts does a phenomenal job and they commit to the least restrictive setting for kids because they're kids. And even though there has to be work done on what got them into DYS, it doesn't mean that we punish them. We're not in the business of punishment. We're in the business of treatment. And so, um, you know, how do I say this? So they coming back to a hardware secure facility like behind locked doors is not conducive to continuing treatment. What we wanna do is continue to help integrate them into the community, right? And so um, there are, community-based programs with CHD and other um, agencies that support the kids while they're in treatment. One of the things, one of the aspects of this that I think is wonderful about Massachusetts is that you have these other facilities for adults and mm -hmm. our sheriff in Hamden County, Sheriff Kochi, before him, Sheriff Ash, they really recognize that there has to be a complete overhaul of how we look at individuals 
that are incarcerated and how we're looking at young juveniles that are incarcerated and how we can help them to come back into the community. If I was a business owner, if I was a politician in this state, I would want those individuals to stay in my community, mm -hmm. participate in what is happening. I wouldn't want them leaving mm -hmm. to go someplace else. Mm -hmm. At the same time, sometimes I think when juveniles are released and they are back in their communities, they're right back where this maybe their trauma or the beginning signs of trouble started. Yep. I want to ask you, what is your thought about kids moving out of the area for treatment and not returning back to those neighborhoods that could be triggers for them? So I don't think that moving kids out of their neighborhoods is the solution. Um, and I, because I have a unique perspective. So, um, you know, juvenile crime was pretty high per capita in Troy and the Virgin Islands when I, when I was there, it had, it had been nationwide. The trend has been decreasing. And we see that particularly in Massachusetts, the number of kids committed to DYS is significantly less than 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, what I think shifted for me in terms of perspective was after the hurricane, um, juvenile crime was significantly at the lowest point it, than it had been in years. And part of that was now there were so many construction jobs. There were so many um, jobs with FEMA and other organizations on rebuilding the island. And so we had young 17, 18, 19, 20, 25, 26 year olds that were able to find good paying jobs um, to be able to provide for their families. Um, we, so at SRT, we have a program where, you know, um, how it's built, we do a lot of community service and we connect with the community and, um, with other partners through DYS place kids in jobs. And so we had a number of success stories. And then when COVID hit and businesses closed and people had to stay at home, they started to provide for families. And we saw some of our kids go back to behaviors that ended up, had them end up with us in the first place, even though they had been trouble-free, quote unquote, for over a year, all of a sudden they were making poor choices again. And, you know, it, I, I had a kid look me in the face and say, miss, I have, a, I have a baby, I have to feed them. You know, the mall closed, I can't go to work. There's like, how do I do this? And so, you know, it, I don't think moving them is the simple answer for some kids. For some kids who, you know, have been shot at or a victim of a shooting or their family, yes, absolutely, that might be the solution to get them out of the immediate neighborhood. But there's also a piece of it where, you know, it's like when DCF removes a kid from a home, that's not always the best solution. It might be in the immediate moment, the solution to get the kids safe, but then you're left with the remnants of, how do we repair that family relationship? How do we, you know, and it's the same thing when you just pull a kid out of Springfield and put them in say Palmer, it doesn't fix the situation necessarily and sometimes creates additional situations. So um, I think it's a much more complicated and complex question. I think so too. And I think I've sat in so many meetings where parents and teachers 
push college on kids. Oh, yeah. Kids that have significant mental health issues that they're struggling with. And I have been, you know, I've, it's, I just sit there and say, what about the trades? We mm -hmm. are losing, we are losing this aspect of the trades that are so important for this population. And well, as, as a, it, it's important as a country, like you have yes. to, as a society, like you value doctors and lawyers and teachers, of course, but you know, if your furnace, if your pipe breaks in your basement or your furnace stops working or, you know, your electricity goes out, somebody's got to come fix that. You know, if your car breaks down, somebody's got to come fix that. You can't just buy a new car for most people. And so, yeah, I don't think there's enough um, emphasis or, um, you know, value placed on working with your hands. Like if you work in the dirt and you're planting and tending animals, like you're feeding people, feeding people, like everyone needs to eat to survive. How is that not a valuable thing? How is somebody who knows how to use their hands and, and, and build a house, not a valuable thing. We all need shelter. So like, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I, and I went to college, I have all the debt to prove it, um, you know, right. So it's, it's, it, my parents stressed that as well. And I, you know, I went, got my master's and did all that, but my brother chose something different. He didn't want to do college. He tried it for a year and thought this isn't me and what did he want to do like he joined the military he wanted to be a police officer he focused on that and that's what he did um you know my husband loves working with his hands that's what he wanted to do so he learned how to you know do floors and loves it and the floors in my home look amazing so <laughs> i'm excited about that but yeah. everyone got to have their thing that they do that they're that is their passion and that's if you're passionate about what you do, then you're going to be happy regardless. I'm passionate about the work that I do, so I'm happy. But this isn't for everybody, nor should it be. Right. So, right. Yeah. I, I completely agree with you. And there are these phrases that I hear in this field that I just wish I could delete them from everyone's brain. But one of them is, when you're out in the real world, you're going to have to do this. When you're out in the real world, you're going to have to do this. Right. And forget what it was like to be young and to try this job and say, no, I don't think I want to do that. Then go over here and try this job and say, oh. and you have all these experiences where you're exploring the things that you like to do. But when you talk about this population of kids, how, when a kid comes to you, do you separate or what do you deal with first? Do you, do you deal with trauma and any type of comorbid diagnosis they might have? Because some of them might not even be diagnosed with anything. They have no idea that they have even been dealing with, with some sort of trauma. Right. Um, it's really, I mean, it's a, it, that's a very complicated question because I think for each kid, it's a different situation. Um, trauma is, we know now something that tends to be pretty invasive, even for people who push it back or push it down, it comes out in other ways that, that they're not even aware of sometimes. Um, and so our clinical staff are amazing and do a phenomenal job of 
kind of addressing it all at once as the kid can take it. And I say kid because, and, and they hate when I do that. They're like, we're young men, miss. Like I'm old enough to be everybody's mother in here. Half the step <laughs> too. Like I just, you're all going to be kids to me. I'm like, nobody remembers Michael Jordan in a basketball game. You're all kids. I don't know what to tell you. Um, so yeah, I mean, our, our, it is having those conversations about trauma, but also really helping them sort of link those thoughts and feelings to the behaviors. You know, for example, if you have a kid that's that, and I I use air quotes, steals food, um, or, you know, those in the field will call it maybe hoarding. And so what's the trauma around that? Because everyday typical people going about their day don't have caches of hidden food, um, unless you're on a diet, because that would be me. (laughs) But um, like hidden in places, right? right? But you talk to our kids who may have gone days without eating or may have been severely neglected or may have just gone for periods of time without knowing where the next meal would come from. And so that sits with them years later. And that's what they do. They hide the Pop-Tarts or the bags of Cheetos or the Gatorades because they don't know if or when the next meal is coming. And even when it is coming on a regular basis, when they're at SRT, it's three meals a day, two snacks a day, you know, um, that trauma still sits with them, you know? Those core beliefs that kids don't even realize that they have and those automatic thoughts are just manifest into so many parts of an individual's mm-hmm. life. And I think that it's we aren't going to, I'm not going to be able to ask a question that is going to be easily answered, but that's okay. I know from the history of this program that you are running now, just over the course of the years, it's been highly successful because it's looking at the whole person, not just them, but their family and their community yep. and supports yep. they have. And they pull yep. those pieces together. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm blessed. Rashida, that I have worked with you. And I want to share this one story. And I don't Uh-oh. know if you will remember <laughs> this, but I remember when I first worked at the boys' house and it was on a weekend. So very few staff. And we took the kids out back. And something happened. And it I think it ha- started manifesting earlier and we just didn't pick up on it. And mm-hmm. we're all outside and I could see it, things were going to go south very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I was so, I just began to get nervous because it was with staff I really didn't know. They mm-hmm. were new, and you just happened to come to the house. Mm-hmm. And in, I'm going to say less than a minute, we were all in the house. Everything was calm. <laughs> I just remember thinking, oh my God, please do not leave this house for sure. <laughs> stay here for the ship but there are people in this field and I always think it's good to share this that just have this natural ability whether you did this for a living or not to de-escalate situations without violence and without aggression and calmly and peacefully but also while allowing that person their autonomy to feel that they are heard and they have faith in themselves and 
I, I'm just so thankful for you coming on and talking about this. I think later down the line, I might ask you to come back and talk about a couple other things as we move topics yeah. around, but yeah. I really appreciate it. And I wish you the best of luck over at CHA. Uh, I hope it's working again for you at some point. Uh, well, we would love to have you. You have, I mean, so I'm going to share a memory. I remember you were on vacation, which you know, I feel like you never took vacation when you worked at Tri-County. Um, and you left me in the care of your chickens. And I remember taking my son, who must have been like two at the time. He was a little one. Um, and he was so excited to go feed the chickens. And this hawk, <laughs> I will never forget the hawk that ended up taking a chicken away and we were so upset we chased him away but I was like Danielle's gonna come back and be like you're never allowed to watch my chickens again and you were so amazing about it you were like it's fine it's not it happens well, um and the, I, those I chickens the goats oh my gosh the goats and the chickens and it yeah. so much went into the care of those animals and the garden and to be honest I knew nothing about I learned right along with the kids and I think that's really what they respected about mm -hmm. me because I didn't really know what I was doing either. And we always premised the goats with, there are hawks and they might, the chicken mm -hmm. not make it, but they were, it's all those experiences working with people like you, like me, the staff over at the boys house, Jake, Gah, all yeah. the people yeah. just, I, I, those kids were just so blessed to have them in their life. So thank you, Rashida. Thank you for coming on and we will talk soon. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye.